everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the TetraCast. This is RPG Site's weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. My name is Brian Vitali. With me, I've got Josh Torres. Hi. We've got Adam Vitali. Hello. Uh, Chow Min Wu. How's it going? And James Galizio. Hey, folks. It's been a pretty busy week. It is now spooky season. We are recording uh, on the 1st of October. So go ahead and get your Halloween decorations out. Go ahead and get your costumes ready uh, or your cosplay or whatever. As we have been discussing over the last couple episodes of the podcast, there are a lot of games coming out really quickly, basically from now to the end of the year. We're going to focus mostly on new releases this week. Once again, uh, last week we talked about the Deal Field Chronicle and the final, finally, the English localization of Trails from Zero, the official one. Uh, and we've got two new games that we're going to be talking about this week, though. One of those is only new in Japan for now. And if you're savvy, you might already know which one that is. But we'll go ahead and give it a quick little look through here. The major release for this week, we'll touch on some of the other recent releases as well as other players get to them. But for this week, our main headline that we're going to be talking about is Valkyrie Elysium. So this game just released in the last seven days uh, for consoles. Uh, it'll not show up on PC until November. And this game is just kind of of interest to, I think, a lot of us here, because a lot of us have some fond memories of Valkyrie Profile. Even one of our, uh, back when we had our YouTube initiative for Casual Mode, one of the first ones we did was Valkyrie Profile. Uh, Valkyrie Elysium was a game that was not announced not that long ago, and it's already released and you know, out and playable, so not, not too often that we see that quick a turnaround on a newly announced RPG. Uh, but it's here, it's playable, and we have official coverage of the game. In order to talk about it, I will be handing it off to Josh Torres, who was able to cover Valkyrie Elysium for us. He was already able to just talk about it a little bit from a preview demo context, but was able to go hands-on with the full game, write up a review for him uh, for the site for the game. In case you haven't read the review, we're going to let him talk about his, ex his experiences with Valkyrie Elysium uh, here on the podcast. So Josh, uh, you've already kind of introduced this game a little bit when we last talked about it. But now that the game is fully out, we'll just kind of go ahead and revisit what Valkyrie Elysium is uh, and what your thoughts are on, uh, were on it. Yeah, uh, I talked a little bit about, you know, my like uh, surprisingly like, you know, positive impressions of Valkyrie Elysium because, you know, when it was first announced, I was like, I don't know, the look of this game is kind of off the the the, the gameplay of it shifted to action RPG. Like its first initial trailer, I just wasn't very hot on. Um, but after spending some time with the demo, I was like, okay, the combat's actually pretty fun and it's like, it's pretty interesting. Um, so, you know, just for, for people who don't know, like this is, uh, like a spinoff, uh, to the Valkyrie profile series. It's not directly related. You don't need to play like the previous, uh, Valkyrie games to understand this game. It's, uh, the story of a new Valkyrie, um, who like gets, uh, summoned by Odin in Asgard. And uh, Odin tasks her to like go, go purify the souls on uh, Midgard, and um, you know because it's it's set like in a dying world, um, a lot of humanity has already perished, um, and then like to combat the in incoming you know occurrence of Ragnarok, you know the the Valkyrie needs to do this, uh, so that's kind of the initial premise of it. Uh, there's it, it's like the, for people going into this like from Valkyrie profile, like the cast is kind of bare bones like in size like you don't have freya in here you don't have uh characters like trist here or anything like that you know you, you don't have like a lot of like the like the other gods and like the other like supporting valkyries or like kind of the side characters in that whole um norse mythology structure that valkyrie profile had it's usually really only the valkyrie odin her, the Anheriar you meet uh, uh and recruit along the way which are like fallen uh, warriors who join the valkyries cause and fight with her and um and like the few antagonists that you meet 
uh, along the way. So it's it's um, it, I was surprised by like how little of the like cast members there were, but it, you know, it's like it's it's functional. Um, I think. I guess before you can go on, one thing, one question yeah. that just popped into my head that I don't know off the top of my head is who is the developer of this game? Obviously published by Square Enix, but who is like the studio behind the game? This is Soleil. Um, Soleil, I, I think. Soleil, sorry. Yeah. This is my favorite. This is my favorite meta game. Is the new Square Enix game? Time to figure out who's actually making it. Well, the reason why I was wondering is because the original profile games were Triace, correct? Is that yeah. right? And then obviously yeah. Triace is making. Star Ocean 6, which is coming out later in the month. So I was like, are, they're not also on this, right? No, it's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Soleil is the uh, development. And like, uh, as I mentioned in my review, like, I think it's like a good, like, first shot at it, like, as newcomers and to, to the series and their own interpretation of it, because, like, this game is actually really fun to play. Like, where the combat is, like, very fast, fluid. I've kind of detailed it in, like, my preview, like, since it's an action RPG now, you have, you can equip different weapons. They're all different types of weapons. They all have their own, like, sub separate move sets and like the way they like feel and handle like they all feel pretty distinct from one another like you know you have your standard standard like normal sword you have like a rapier you have uh like a, a great sword a magical rod um like a different kinds of spears even like a big heavy spear and a double-sided spear um and like th those are really fun to experiment around with because like as you like enhance them they gain like new moves in their move set and um as you uh unlock new Einher yard that like have their own elements you can like imbue them with that Einher yards element as they're summoned on the field and then you can exploit weaknesses uh with that and kind of attack in conjunction with your Einher yard so it it and like and it just it all feels very fluid and like all the uh animations of the valkyrie like make sense and like it just kind of transitions pretty well it's like it's very responsive and i really like the combat because of that um so it's it's that's a lot of fun um just generally playing that game i think everything else about it like i said in my review is pretty mediocre and serviceable it's like the story is kind of it doesn't really wrap up to like the very end and even then like the the payoffs aren't you know they're kind of whatever they're very predictable it's like it's like as the valkyrie journeys around these different regions that there's this other like uh valkyrie and dark armor who keeps getting in her way and keeps like you know spouting riddles of like oh you don't know the truth like why are you doing this what's your purpose etc oh then, that you know, frustrates it, me i, I, I like, hate that trope where it's yeah. like you none you understand nothing yeah you, you know what you me. know less no. than you think you know yeah, exactly. uh, don't so, don't you hate being in the dark haha ha, i know yeah. more than you do it's a, uh, exactly <laughs> it's, it's, so it's like oh maybe you know odin's not such a great guy crazy stuff, you know um so that, that that's a common plot occurrence and then uh, but like the 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 main thing that you're doing be before like the final story beats is like hey you're traveling around these regions you like you and you gradually encounter on by like picking up these relics across the environment that like pertain to them and their backgrounds and then uh you confront them and then there's like a, a certain like corrupted part of their soul that's like sp uh split off from them as a fragment and they're like the bosses of the game so after you beat that boss that i'd yard joins you after like you know you you say basically they have their own regrets in life it's like you have a chance to like make uh, uh things right again by saving the world with me and that's you know what uh you know that's why they join the valkyrie and their co and her cause um 
and and so it's just like it's kind of standard whatever as like as like unlike the original valkyrie profile where like you like, recruit i'd hear you are but actually like viewing their scenes like in the context of like you go to this new place you see like a very like you know so, a story vignette of like their what they were like in life and like what caused their death in this game it's very disjointed and like kind of almost lifeless because you don't really see the characters uh, they interact with most of that is like behind these optional memories that you unlock when you when they first join you and when like you up when you unlock more skills from them for like the, through their character side quests like these like memories of them are like very easy to miss because you see you see them unlocked and then they're like in the collection uh menu uh in the game and then you scroll to them and they're basically like almost like mini drama cds where it's just like ca- like characters that they that they interacted with part of their history it's all just done through text that that's voiced um and there's like no playful way of like how it's presented to you it's not like the lost odyssey's thousand year of dreams segments where it's like yeah they actually have like play around with the text of the are they, are they basically just like journal entries or emails in other games pretty, yeah pretty much it's, it's basically like you audio know, logs everyone yeah, audio, audio logs. logs pretty much yeah and like and like their stories are okay and i wish like more of that was like somewhat integrated more it's like the main story in a sense or just like better presented which is it's kind of a shame that's like it's kind of like stored away through that because like i think like there's like some part some parts that like really you know flesh them out but it can never really be addressed like you know um in a in a meaningful fashion because of the way they chose to do this so this is like okay whatever i guess um and you know and uh, all the other like side things like these like these flower collectible flowers um the, throughout the regions that you could collect that they're like marked on the mini map uh, to collect them and they're just basically like like and almost like npcs um of like just kind of like the dying memory of like people like uh like as a person was like you know passed away like what was your final thoughts on that and some of them are silly like some of them is like the 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 dying memory of like a horse you know it's it is this furious neighing in the, the dialogue field it's like mm-hmm. yep well that sucks and it, and, you know, and the valkyrie series is like it's kind of known for that melancholic like borderline lifeless after atmosphere because it's like you know set in like a very like uh, post like apocalyptic like dying world like on the brink of like just total collapse but like in this in this game it just feels too empty and isolated it's just like uh you know it's it's hard to get really invested in the way that they present a lot of like the the story the plot the narrative beats um but like once again it's like it's functional it's serviceable it makes sense it's not like anything awful it's just like you just could you could see like the constraints of development on this game uh on ev- like every part of it uh as you're going through it like they they you can tell that the developers decided to make like their their best efforts into making the game fun to play and like everything else kind of took a backseat to it and like like that's where i feel like conflicted on it it's like i i can't like for me when i like go into a game and i review it i'm like if a game is fun to play that means like a lot to me like at least you know i can i can forgive a lot of like you know maybe average story kind of whatever characters kind of like you know and the, and the music is okay it's fine it's nothing like for for me it's like nothing special like but it's a lot of it's like it's okay and and the exciting part about it is playing through the game and that's for me that that's like that's cool i, I like that so that's why i'm not like 
super super down on it because like i just like genuinely like playing the game <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's there's nothing much to like really talk about outside of that to be honest it's just like it's a very standard like character action game all the way through yeah. i was gonna ask is there any homage to the old valkyrie profile games or is there none at all there is there is like some nods to like the valkyrie profile games like the way they manifest is a bit of a spoiler so that's why I'm, i'll be coy about it but there is but i think it's it manifests in really odd ways somewhat almost borderline like out of place <laughs> i'd say but there there is there is so Adam, like, I know that like, for, profile... for example sorry go ahead and then i'll ask adam the question yeah. Yeah, like for example, like you know, child, like in the trailer, you see like the the field of weeping lilies uh, on it, and like the like the context around that is like, it's kind of weird, <laughs> like the context around that. But you know, the weeping lilies imagery yeah. is very iconic in Valkyrie Profile. So, Adam, I know that you think very highly of Valkyrie Profile. Um, when Josh describes Valkyrie Elysium as kind of like this fine game with good combat. Uh, it's kind of like I agree with Josh that like if a game is going to hit anything well, I'd rather be the gameplay than anything else. I'd rather play through a game that has really you know tight combat and you know interesting challenges and have average storytelling. But for Valkyrie Profile, does that still hold true? Because I know that you think very very highly of the Ein Harriar stories in the original games. So to hear that they're kind of take a back seat and kind of are almost bland in this game, I just want to know what your like initial takeaway from reading or hearing that is. Well, ever honestly, to be honest, since the beginning of when this game was announced and it's like a spin-off, I've always sort of treated it as a separate distinct thing. Like I wouldn't when I when I I'll play it when it comes to PC, but I'm not going to really make many comparisons to the original games because it's a, not only is it a different developer, but it's just a different style of game. It just has like a Valkyrie coat of paint or whatever. Yeah. So like you know, whether it's canonically or not canonically connected, whether it's you know the same type of game or not, like I'm just really not going to be making many comparisons. It's just like, oh, it's a spinoff. Yeah, that's it. I think that's the, like the kind of the right mindset to go into it. I think trying to like compare this like directly to Valkyrie Profile is kind of uh, it's kind it's it's so uh, it's borderline outlandish because it's like it's such, like as you said, it's a very very different style of game and like it's a very different developer. I think there there shouldn't be like the same set of expectations. Almost, if, if anything, like it's kind of nice that at least Ed Harriard like frequently interact with one another, like more so than the previous games. They're like they're more chatty with the Valkyrie, more chatty with each other, you know, because there's there's so few of them in comparison, like in number, in comparison to older games, that like they at least give them the, the time to at least you know make chit chatter with each other, which like a lot of like the Harriard don't really do in um, previous games. I, that actually sounds really nice because I'm actually going to ask you described it like the Iron Harrier stories are kind of incorporated into like the main game and serve as in ways the game's bosses. And I was wondering, like, OK, once you clear a certain story and you've got an Iron Harrier, like you, you, you describe them more like field skills in your preview uh, impressions. And I was wondering, like, OK, like once you get past a certain Iron Harrier's like story arc, do they maintain a presence in the story or are they just kind of there in the menu? So it sounds like you're saying they do kind of interact with. The other the other characters and with the yeah yeah the they, they do interact with each other yeah they're not just like lifeless dolls or anything they do you know they they they're, they're in like cutscenes and like it's not like anything like super significant but it's like it's they're, they're there their presence is nice and they do like interact with one another 
So if this game didn't have a Valkyrie coat of paint, would you basically still feel similarly on it? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, like if this, even if this didn't have like the same, like if they didn't have like the Valkyrie brand on it, if it was like it's a totally thing, I have like the same um, impressions. You know, it's not. I, I didn't go into this review going, "Hey, I got to compare this one to one with Valkyrie profile," but I just want to. I, I think the review is more setting expectations of like, "Hey, this is, you know, this is our own separate thing." And like the, I, re- I wanted to make it very clear at the end of the review that like. I wouldn't want this to like overtake a Valkyrie profile, but I think there's enough room in the world to like let these both Valkyrie profile and Valkyrie Elysium like have like a a peaceful coexistence with one another because they're such different games and having different takes on a similar formula and a similar premise is like is kind of nice, you know. Like I w- I wouldn't want them I wouldn't want this like this whole like foundation that Soleil like built to like just vanish like in a one off, like oh that was just like a whatever you know a failed experiment. Or something. I I would I would want like another follow up that like like has enhancements to like how it plays and enhancements to like other parts of the game. Like I could see like a, a genuinely great game out of that. And also I would want obviously would want to see another installment of like you know Valkyrie profile and seeing like what a modern what does that like system look in a modern lens and what sort of interesting stories can you like uh, tell through that as well. And I think I think there's enough room in the world to like for these two to coexist and not just be like one or the other. I mean, it'd be nice to see if Valkyrie can kind of at least keep the IP afloat, even if it's not the same sort of game and it is set in the same, you know, mythos. Just we haven't seen that in a while. When, when was the last time we saw the Valkyrie IP? It was the um, the mobile game that shut down. Yeah. Anatomia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It came out after Covenant in the Plume. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Hey, yeah. Covenant in the Plume is the only one I've played. I, I don't remember any, anything about it. That's but pretty hey, good. It's, it's a pretty well, good game, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we talked about this last week on the podcast, but the, uh, the Valkyrie Profile PSP port is coming to PlayStation Network, but it's been delayed to December, if I remember right. Yes. Because uh, it got delayed like three months when it was supposed to coincide with the Valkyrie Elysium release. So maybe in November on PC, I'll play Elysium, and then in December, I'll finally play uh, Silmaria, or not Silmaria, um, Lenneth, uh, yeah. once, it, once, once it comes to uh, the, uh, the PlayStation Network. Yeah, it always so. is difficult discussing games that are just kind of like, yeah, it's fine. It's got good combat. Like, I want to latch on to something. Like, what do you think this game does? What is its, what is its like, driving, like, badge of honor? Like, what, Honestly, what does it like, do the, best? The, 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 I, like, the badge of honor is its combat. <laughs> I mean, straight up. There's nothing, there's nothing really else I can give it, like, above that you know because the the thing that you're really here for like the the, the reason why i kept up like this like, i enjoyed the combat i just like it it's just it's just fun to really genuinely move around and do combos and just have it all you know just be very fluid and that's like in my opinion that's like that's the only thing that really really shines about it and and for me that's kind of enough because like once again like if a game is fun to play then that that's great for me i love i love playing games yeah does i didn't play the demo but is the game set in like segmented regions of an open of an overworld map or is it more like chapter based just like how do you flow from it's just just stages so like say like chapter one and chapter two like they're kind of they kind of share the same map but you have like different uh like yeah you're exploring different sections of the map so like chapter one might be like the first half of the map and then chapter two is like the second half of the map that you're exploring but they're all like stages they're all usually linear levels with some side paths that you can take to get collectibles but generally you're going from point a to point b uh in in those stages and then you fight like a boss at the end 
and then you get a stage ranking after that uh based on you know like how long it took to you for you to complete the stage like your best combo counter um how many times you use your magic um and it's just it's kind of it's it's very linear it's kind of like a almost a uh playstation one playstation two era sort of uh level design it's not open it's just just like stages like so very like arcadey and like doing score yeah. attack on stage three or stage six or whatever yeah, there's no score attack, but I know that like in an upcoming update, there's like a Seraphic Gate that's like a, a time attack, uh, so, mm-hmm. which, is, which is speaking to what you're talking about. But yeah, it 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 calls back to like kind of like that, like quote unquote old school level design. Which uh, you know what, I don't I don't mind at all. Like I kind of like that. It's like kind of more of a, a on the brief side of things. It's not some sprawling fifty hour RP, uh, RPG. You know, how long kinda, did it take I, you? It took about like a little over a little under twenty hours to like just fully complete um mm-hmm. for me and i i like that you know i'd rather it be more on the brief side rather than like try to like force itself to be a 40 to 50 hour rpg and just feel bloated and yeah yeah you know and, and this game does have uh multiple endings i put up a guide on it and it's it's all it's pretty straightforward but it's like a lot of the like, all the prerequisites are like on the final stage and it all depends on what you do on the final stage because there's like there's like two distinct triggers in the um final stage that'll determine your ending like there's like four endings and like and, and those triggers are like you activate one but not the other you activate both and then you get this you may activate the other one but not this one then you get another ending etc so i have not like rented a game in forever the way you're describing this this game seems like the perfect rental like if i i don't yeah. even know if Redbox still does like physical ps5 games or whatever but like uh-huh. if they did i could feel i could see like dropping three bucks or five bucks and just this would like be a, yeah this is yeah <laughs> blockbuster hollywood video was still around this would be a fantastic <laughs> rental game you are not you are not wrong so i guess uh unless you have like much more to say on it obviously i will call out that you have your written review up on the site and we also have like the, the preview coverage as well if you want to see josh's impressions more in detail and i'm sure before the end of the year we will have other people play the pc release when it comes out in november maybe some others will poke at the console release now uh so we'll hear about this game at least a couple more times uh as we go into the last few months of the calendar year but as it stands it sounds like it's just a, a fun brief fine experience that you know you basically sound like you're recommending it but you're not gonna give it any like awards yeah just like if it's not like a fun action game go for it you know i mean I, I, like obviously mileage will vary on like what you're willing to spend on a video game for it like i know a lot of people like it it seems fun but maybe i'll wait for a discount and that's totally fine you know i get it well go ahead and give uh josh's valkyrie elysium review up on the site i believe it's one of the one of the headers at the top if not i'll, I'll try to see if i can shift it shift it up there uh but yeah no thanks for looking at that for us for both the uh the pre-release coverage as well as the review coverage for that game i know it kind of was like a a brief almost like side note for the year because it was announced kind of late we we kind of talked about it as it was announced with a little bit of a lukewarm hesitation because it didn't show well, but it seems like ever since that, it's been a little bit better word of mouth uh, ever since its initial reveal. So kind of good that it ended up not being a catastrophe and it's something that we're, you know, that we're kind of solidly recommending. Totally fine. Yeah, it's yeah. totally fine. Valkyrie Elysium is totally fine. High praise. Uh, so the other game that we're going to be talking about this week is also a new release, but we will have to be a little bit careful uh, as we talk about it, because this game we will not see officially in English for probably quite a while. Uh, and I think both both James and Josh will be able to talk about this to a limited extent. And that is 
Kuro no Kiseki 2 Crimson Sin. Obviously, this is the most recent release of the uh, Kiseki or Trail series released in Japan just this last week. Uh, then second game set in the Calvard part of the storytelling in the newest arc of the series. James, I know, has interest in playing through this more thoroughly. And I know Josh has also been watching this game as it's been released in Japan. Uh, so Colonel Kaseki 2, we're probably going to try to talk about this game at a very high level because we don't obviously we don't want to spoil anything. But not only that, but we are cognizant of the fact that it won't release in English for a while um, officially. But at least want to kind of just get your very high level impressions about what you've seen of the game. How excited are you to see it in English in four-ish years or so? Uh, how does it compare to your impressions of the first game, which I know both of you have experience with uh, firsthand? Uh, and just kind of just that. Uh, since he hasn't had a chance to talk yet, I don't know which of you has made more progress uh, with Kuro 2, but I'll hand it off to James first, because I do no, know that he would... Hand it off to hand it off to Josh. <laughs> no, already. I'll hand it off to Josh again. Uh, we'll yeah. hand it off to Josh. Uh, well, like, Kuro 2, I'll just like take it away. Yeah, similar to the first game, like the way I experienced that is like I've been watching my my friends play through it, like from the very beginning to where he's up to right now. Um, it's he's a little over fifty hours in, and like uh, me and him, I've been kind of like translating, interpreting, like into uh, uh, all the other what friends. What he on? He's oh my god, this is we're we're past. Mm, oh man, how do I how do I say this without spoiling? We're past like where the where, where chapter selects are a thing, um, and then after the chapter selects, something different happens. And there's a lot of like branching narratives happening right now. So um let's uh, he's over 50 hours. He's at a part where I can't really say anything without spoiling it. <laughs> let's All right. I love this series. Yeah. yeah. Um, um it's, so the, uh, the one it. thing I can say about Kuro 2 is that it, it it's it's fucked up. Something happens like within the first hour that like inevitably like is going to be a major part of the gameplay but explaining what it is i don't know i mean it's, it's, i don't know if it's a massive spoiler because they they marketed this too right it's well kind of like, no they didn't they they hinted at it but they never outright said it i guess so. like it was like a, just a long trailer but i any, mean it's uh, hard to talk about this game without saying it right i mean like it's i mean not really, i mean not really like spoiler, if, if, if you if you've played the series, you know that eventually some sort of sectarian is going to get involved. And even if I, I'm not sure if this specific okay. sectarian, like I'm just going to say that I'm going to talk about the I'm going to talk about this. I like I will say what it is because you can't really talk about this game without saying it. That like to be fair, like if you if you want to go in completely blind in this game and not hear or see anything, then like maybe skip like the next 15 minutes yeah, or something. And, and obviously, also, again, it's like the first things. hour. It's like yeah. the first hour, so you almost immediately come across this. Yeah, so this it's... is like in the prologue. Um, so basically, this follows up two months after the events of the first Kuro no Kiseki. Uh, the, the protagonist is still Van Arkride. He's kind of like, you know, uh, almost like a, a private investigator of sorts. Uh, is he still around, a Spriggan uh, in this game? Yes, he's still yes. a Spriggan, yes. So um, at the very beginning of this game, the very, like the core premise of this game is there has been sightings of a red Grendel, and if you remember from the first game, the Grendel mode is like kind of like that that creature that uh, Vaughn can like kind of transform into. Um, it's kind of like a blue black armor ish with like a like blue hair coming out of it. It's kind of it, it you know it's if you've seen it you've seen it. So for um, for some reason you know th there's red Grendel now going around in Kurunokiseki too. So at the very beginning, Elaine, um, you know, childhood friend of Avon, uh, like uh, turns to him because, you know, she's seen these sites like, oh, I know like oh, one person that like ha that 
that is familiar with this that kind of looks like this. So at the so I mean, Elaine, you can outright say why she uh, um, works together with him because the whole plot plot line of Kuro two doesn't spoil anything of Kuro one. Basically, <laughs> this red Grendel appears or crimson Grendel, however you're going to call it, and he basically just kills an entire like uh, entire like platoon of uh, CID operatives and they weren't sure what was killing them, but they finally got some like data from like one of the operatives helmets. And because of what they saw, um, even though like both uh, of uh, Van's childhood friends know that he wasn't the one that did it. Suddenly Van is now the most uh, reasonable suspect, even yeah. though he didn't do it. Yeah. So um, Elena and Van at the uh, prologue of the game kind of investigate, you know, si- sightings of like where the Red Grendel was, like because the, like the, there's like very specific things that happen when the Red Grendel appears, like the orbital network um, shutting down uh, around those uh, spots. So you know, you do some investigation. Kind of, it's kind of interesting, like the, the 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 pacing of uh, the the prologue of this game because you don't really get into like your tutorial fight to like an, an hour and a half to two hours of the game. Like it's a lot of Kind of introducing you to like kind of new stuff because in the first game it was very much kind of like uh it, it, relative to other trails games the first game was kind of bare bones like there wasn't really like a lot of mini game stuff a lot of side like there's side quests but there's not like side activities in that game and this one that kind of introduces you to like the fishing mini game introduces you to the hacking mini game there's even all oh, right like, the uh curl one has no fishing yeah or it's just limited fishing. i'm not sure what's what's more cursed no fishing or pixel perfect fishing Okay, so th- so this is funny. So the 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 in this game, the fishing. In- I am already going to fishing in this game. <laughs> um, like there are spots in like uh, there's like a free fishing mode where like you can pull out your rod and like fish from any point as long as it's, like near like a body of water, and like it'll show you in, like the top right corner, like you know, like the fish that you can get from it. Like say there's like two fish you can get like from this spot, but then there are certain points in like that like body of water where like. A third fish will be there, um, and like, you just have to like find the perfect spot. Um, it looks like pixel perfect things at first, but you do get like a detective sonar later on that like shows you on like the body of water. Okay, there's like a fishing spot here that you can do. Like it'll show. It, there are there's a mechanic that like will show you. Okay, this is where the, where the spot is for the That's fishing. Good. Yeah. Um. So, um, yeah. So as you're going around uh, and like kind of. Doing this uh, this investigation, uh, Elaine and Van eventually catch up to the Red Grendel. And okay, the, uh, once again, I I will for anyone listening in, this is kind of a thing that happens in the very first hour of this game. But it is a major mechanic that wasn't really properly marketed in the in in this game. And does um, it does it uh, what is what you're about to say going to spoil anything from Curl One or is it separate? Separate. Separate. So this so, is a, this is kind of like a premise thing of Kuro too. Yeah, yeah. The, right. the, the, I, the, yeah, the prem, like the 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 ongoing knowledge you need from Kuro one that doesn't really spoil it. It's kind of like obviously this is what happens at the uh, like you know the state of things from Kuro one to Kuro two. Like from Kuro one, like the main investigation was you're helping this uh, woman named Agnes uh, get like these um, devices called the Genesis, and because like her uh, grandfather was like it's kind of like his legacy. Um, for yeah. those devices, and they say outright, but the Genesis are basically the equivalent of the prototypes for orbments. 
And for whatever reason, they just have like incredible powers and they can do all sorts of things. Yeah. But wait, did you cut out on that? The prototypes for what? You just cut out that. that, that Sorry. Thing. But yeah, so basically these Genesis are all like prototype orbments that have like incredible powers for whatever reason. Yeah. And, so uh, the state of the, the, the state of Koro Kuro 2 is like you have seven of these eight uh, Genesis items and you're looking for the final one uh, in this. So in the prologue, once again, uh, Vaughn and uh, Elaine catch up to the Red Grendel, and um, they, it's, it's only you, they're only the ones on it. You're the, they're the ones in your party at that moment, and they kind of get smoked uh, by the Red Grendel. Like, they um, flat out die and get killed by the Red Grendel. Um, so Elaine is the first to, like, die, and then Odd, and then um, Kincaid, which is another childhood friend of Vaughn, uh, who works for the CID, and Agnes got ga- Goes to like arrives on the scene right as the Red Grendel is holding up Vaughn by his neck and like stabs through him, like and this happens right in front of both of them. And Anya's like freaks out and like she's like, of course, like she's gonna freak out. Uh, and for some weird reason in this game, time reverses and you can time leap back to a certain point. Um, in the, in this instance, very very, this is the first time it happens. There is a decision where, um. Basically, Elaine and Vaughn are working, uh, are getting out of uh, uh, the CID. I think it's the police office or CID office. Um, and uh, Agnes shows, uh, sees them uh, uh, walking out of this building. And Agnes is like, Oh, what are you guys up to? And they fill her in on the situation of like, Oh, they're investigating, investigating the Red Grendel case. And Agnes is like, Oh, like I can help out with that. Like, and of course, Vaughn's like, No, you have schoolwork you go focus on school we will handle this that was like the first like normal way those events uh did now when you timely back van is like like kind of like has like a weird like off feeling like a premonition almost and he's like you know pretty much uh, agrees to like let anya's help uh, uh help them out with this so um the next time that event occurs with the red grendel um of uh, Kincaid and Agnes are with um, uh, Vaughn and uh, Elaine uh, before uh, investigating this time around, and that changes things. Um, so I, I have that- two immediate uh, things that pop in my head the way you're describing this. One is within yeah. the series, and one's without the series. Uh, I'm, I'm thought of just Xenoblade One, just like the premonitions of the Monado, kind of, mm-hmm. and then also the uh, the the very ending revelations of Trails to Azure. But we mm-hmm. can't say anything more than that for people that are planning to play that game early next year. But mm-hmm. not the first time that this series has kind of dabbled with not time travel, but kind of like permutation of events and like the like the possibility of different outcomes. So I, just yeah. the way you're describing that, I do think sounds pretty damn interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. And then, you know, after after you kind of drive off the Red Grendel and like prevent like the deaths of Elaine and Van. Um, two of the central new characters that were released uh, that were um, introduced in Trails into Reverie, uh, Swid and Nadia, um, also show up because they're investigating the Red Grendel case as, as well. They do show up at the very beginning of the game when the Red Grendel kind of smokes um, the the people looking uh, into them, and they show up like after like the the scene has already happened. It's like oh, we should go turn to Spriggan uh, for for these uh, find out what's going on, and they have like yeah. their own reasons. Uh, of uh, investigating as well so i I will say it's uh, like 
I know I've said this in the past where like you obviously get a lot of, um, more out of Kuro 1 if you've played the rest of the series. But I did say that I felt like you could start with Kuro 1. Kuro 2, in typical Trails fashion, you better have played the rest of the series, fucker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like if I, if I were to say like you're the, like if people want like the most important like games to like know of or like refresh their memory, like knowing what I know now, it'd be like Trails the Third, uh, Trails of the Sky the Third, um, Zero, um, Hajimari. Re- yeah, Reverie for sure. But and the I'm problem still, is though is that if you need to play, if you need to be yeah. like familiar with Trolls in the Sky Third and Hajimari, yeah. that basically means you need to play every fucking game. Yeah. So I mean, it's just that, that's yeah. This is kind of like the we knew this going in, but that's what it is now. Um, and you know, I, I won't talk too much uh, more into like how the game is, but one of the main central like different the quote unquote differences in this uh, title is that it's mu- it's very very similar to Hajimari. At the start of like the initial chapters, you have a chapter select of like Vaughn go investigates this part of the region, while the second um, party like at the at, at the first uh, first it's Elaine uh, with uh, Swin and Nadia, and then the next chapter it's Agnes with Swin and Nadia. It's like there's a second party, and then like they kind of hold things, uh, um, making sure the capital is safe, and while uh, Vaughn goes off into another region of Calvard and like investigates with other like returning. Uh, Mem- uh, party members from Kuro One, um, so it's kind of uh, it starts off like that. Um, this is like I thought it would be like this for like the majority of the game. Uh, it very much changes uh, as the game goes on. Uh, I won't say how, but it does change uh, with with that structure, uh, with pretty interesting ways. I think the weirdest part about this game, and I I think this will only make sense for like people who've like played uh, almost all of these games. Is, like this game is like. It's like it, it rolls up the being a sequel and like uh, and being a Kaseki Gaiden game into one, uh, is what like what my thoughts are on it at the moment. I think the these uh there are many times as you played in this game that like there will be tragic stuff that happens and you and it rewinds time back, and it does it like and it's like all mandatory too. It's not like a large chunk of them aren't like branching. Things it's like part of the main narrative, so like you're forced to go into these like dead ends or like bad ends almost, and like you reverse time and like that's just part of the main plot for a a large chunk of it, and it kind of it kind of feels cheap in a sense because it like I really like Kuro One because it shows like you know this new there's this new cast and there's a new main character that's like very competent, but because of the way this game like has its story structure it kind of damages like that the characterization of those characters in a sense because they um, and for some of those dead ends they almost seem incompetent and kind of walked into those dead ends and it's like and it's like one of those things it's like a lot a lot of them it's like it's obvious that it's gonna like end like that you know what i'm saying um from what you're telling me this kind of reminds me of reading historia um you're forced to experience all the bad ends in order to get the real ending but I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how. I don't know exactly, but like uh, how this game will end yet. Um, you know, I don't know how far out like uh, my my friend and I are. It's like, uh, you know, the end of this game. So we haven't seen the full story play out yet. Um, so, so like I, I like I just have like a lot of like, yeah. and also like the story pacing is uh, I, I will say is not as great as uh, Kuro was much tighter um, right. yeah. story. 
I feel like that was always going to be a given, though, because there's not a single like follow up uh, Trails game to like to a beginning game in an arc that has better pacing or as good pacing as the first game. Like Cold Steel 1's pacing, slow, but pretty decent. Cold Steel 2's pacing, all over the place. Uh, first chapter's pacing, slow, but decent. Second chapter's pacing, that game is entirely backloaded. Yeah, and, and this this one is, it's very wild, but that, that's all I'll say about that, about its pacing. There, there's a lot of, um, we'll say we'll say that like, it being it coming out the year after Kuro one and having the, and Malcolm having to meet deadlines, it's like there, there's a lot of like, let's say asset release in this game, which is this is what happens in like other trails games, but this one is like very obvious as well too. But they did, uh, but the gameplay of this game is like a is a pretty significant step step up. The, the battle system has like uh, interesting um, the things to be- it. Like new, new, before you get before you get more in detail, I just have a, a basic question: yeah. Does this still have the trigger between? turn and action that the first yes. one had okay yeah yeah this is still like a hybrid uh, action that you can switch it to turn-based um for like the random encounters for boss battles they're always turn-based they're, they're they force you into being tur- turn-based for those is that how the first game worked yes okay yeah so there's like new actions in like the action combat where you can have you can uh, uh cast quick arts so you can cast magic uh while you're in the action mode also when you do like a, a perfectly timed dodge there's like a cross change um uh icon that that means that like you can like attack immediately with like another character as you swap to them in real time during the action mode just like this is like a fun little thing it's not like super significant but it's fine um the turn based is uh see some improvements as well with uh, the new ex chain system so in this game a, a big um, focus of kuro one and kuro two is like when you stun enemies they have like the stun meter and when you get them to stun um they'll like They'll be inactive for a few turns. They'll get. They'll take you know more damage, um, and it's like it's just a big you know uh, advantage for your for your side if they if they're stunned. So at any time like they're stunned and you either use a normal attack or a craft while you uh, when you boost up. Um, yeah, once you activate those, you'll go into an ex chamber. You and like the linking partner that you're close to will attack both at the same time for extra damage. Uh, that's a new feature in this game um there are there are several like just minor mechanic things that like they changed up in this game too where like you can't like spam like an s craft twice in a row there's actually like a recast like almost cooldown time for that um unless like you boost up um and just like minor things like you know minor things like that but it's it's generally you know a, a more expanded version of kuro one's system and, and the boston counter design is funny in this game because it reminds you of uh reverie of like there's like a lot of like interesting like almost like puzzle boss fights or like they have like very um interesting gimmicks to them that are kind of um they're, they're they're very uh like you know like his kiseki boss cards are very momentum heavy of like whoever has like the the upper hand it's very hard to like kind of turn around a situation so it's kind of it's kind of it, it it continues that momentum uh, based sort of boss design from reverie um, where like so, some bosses like they won't even let you like play the game because they keep like stacking up their turns and delaying your party and stuff like that. Um, bosses can also uh, interrupt your uh, characters with their own uh, s breaks uh, with their own s crafts at some points too, which is something you have to be mindful of. Um, but in, in general, it's like it's just the gameplay is more solid and there's more things to do in the game like side activities wise. Like there's even like the you remember the the tailing missions from Judgment? They're in this game. 
Yeah, I just played through both those games, and yeah. I was surprised at how prevalent they still were in Lost Judgment. Yeah, like uh, like they they're, 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 they're yeah they're prevalent like in the side stuff for ju- Lost Judgment, but like in the main story, if you're just doing main story in Lost Judgment, they only like you only do it like once or twice. Like uh, it, I guess that's true. Yeah, because I played yeah. all the um. Not to get too much on a tangent, but I did all the school yeah. stories because I had good word of mouth on those, and that had a lot of the tailing missions incorporated into that. Yeah, yeah so. the, the the one in the uh, Kuro Two is like the way they kind of do that. It's kind of like a more janky version of those, and they're not they're not implemented well, but they do have like the 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 meters for like oh the found meter of like it'll fill up, and if it fills up, you'll fail it, and then there's like a lost meter, like you can't let them stray away too far from it. And then, like in this game, like there's like highlighted sections, like kind of like in the verse judgment, where you go into them to like, uh, kind of, put down the bar of them, like of you being found out. Um, oh, so those the, aren't in Kuro One at all, or no, are they? No, no so they're new, new. Okay. Yes. Um, and it's kind of it, they're they kind of don't make a lot of sense, like if you think about because some, some of those like hiding spots are like out in the open, and they're like, oh, where are they? I can't see them. And they're like, you're like right by them, just crouching down, you know. <laughs> And it's just like, okay, I guess, you know. <laughs> so a lot of them is like, it's whatever. It's not implemented well, but it's like, it's funny. And why would they do this? Um, I, I forgot to ask something. Uh, yeah. Since there's a time loop system, is it easily to able to get a perfect playthrough in this game? Because you could go mm-hmm. back in time and miss all the stuff that you did get. You cannot, you cannot um, manipulate the time leaping you cannot just like uh on on the fly oh i want time leap back it, it is like a, a a plot story point that will happen that will lead you to a dead end and then you that's when you time leap and it's like you can only time leap back to the what the game wants you to time leap back to it's not something you can freely control but uh, as far you as lose I, your progress like, no no you, you, you don't you don't lose like the levels you gain in that route you don't use like the equipment that you get like everything is carried over with you when you time leap back uh with you so that reminds yeah, me. Didn't the first game have like, uh, like a, a a rudimentary choice system, like Paragon Renegade thing? Uh, yeah, LGC, it, yeah, yeah. The, the, the uh, great chaos alignments. It does. Uh, this game does have them. I don't know how it manifests yet in this game, but there's a certain like in Kuro One, it manifests in a very specific spot. I don't know how it manifests yet in this game. So I might imagine it will it will prop up sometimes. But yes, this game does have that LGC alignment system. That basically like gives you choices like on certain like side quests that say, "Hey, what do you want to do with this like like criminal? Do you want to hand them over to this faction or this faction?" How, how significantly that did that play out in the first game? I know you can't spoil it, but like, did it end up being like a major? No, uh, just a major it's factor. Not a, it's not a major thing. Like, it's not a spoiler just to say that there is like something that happens in Chapter Five of Crow where your LGC rank just determines who you can choose to uh um have as an optional party member for the chapter that's it. yeah 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 like like it also it also uh props up the like you know like it's like decisions of like what von does like to the antagonist like you know if you're a certain alignment he'll arrest them if, uh, if it's another alignment he'll just flat out kill them no 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 that's that's not it you still have an option of what you can do then Oh, you saw the option. I tried trying to remember that. Okay, it okay. just I do believe that. Um, I I remember the, it not being an option, but it might okay, have because okay. of the, the alignment. It might have because of how the alignment was leaning for it, those playthroughs. Okay, so here's the thing: if you align yourself with the default option, which is always available regardless of your LGC, it won't stop you from um, either arresting them or killing them. 
if you go with if you align yourself with if with a group that's law, you can't kill them. If you align yourself with a group that's chaos, you have to kill them. Okay, that's how it yeah. works. Okay, yeah. So, so that's kind of yeah, that, that seems like kind of like good flavor without feeling like you have to really stress about making the right choices. If it's kind of just if the most significant way it comes out is which optional party member do you get for a chapter. Also, I feel like most people that played through Kuro probably just went with the default uh, party member you choose because the, everyone wanted to play with that character. Everyone wanted to play the, with the, that The character. nice thing about Kuro, too, is like a lot of those characters that were like kind of more guest characters, they're more fully playable in Kuro, too, because like a lot of those characters that were like kind of op, quote unquote optional characters that to still join your party, you couldn't mess with like their art orbit setups or their accessory. You couldn't really like kit them the way that you wanted in Kuro 2. It expands that. Like they're like more they're more fully playable. Um and you can actually manipulate those and some of them become very strong because you're allowed to like like customize them the way that you want. And uh this game has like kind of like a, a mode where um separate from like the main story there's like this um, um I, I forgot it's how it's pronounced like Mitchin Garten mode. It's kind of like a VR uh mode where it's like you go through these like dungeon uh dungeons and then like your your full uh, vast array of party members, regardless of like, like where they are, can like party up with each other. So like, let's say like these two party members, uh, like in the story, never pair, pair up with these two party members. But like in this mode, if like you want to pair them together, you can do it in this mode because it's kind of like an optional dungeon mode that like uh you go from like um stage to stage. It kind of has like branching paths, like a a roguelite where like you can see like the rewards and like what, what sorts of monsters up in that and then they have like several like objectives like kill the x of this type of monster or like break x of these crystals around the map and then you move on to the next node until like you reach the boss of that run so it's kind of like a, a like a, an optional but fun thing to like kind of mess around with different party compositions and like have you know characters that you like all your favorites like you know party up together and like do what you want uh in that mode um like at different floors of that mode will open up as you advance the main narrative um and then there's like you know there's there's like uh like mechanics from like like reverie go into like are in that mode too like there's like a gotcha system in this game that like is similar to reverie where like you earn currency as you play through that mode it's not like it's not anything you have to pay for or anything it's all in game and you get fun stuff like you know mats to like make accessories and attachments um mats to like unlock like new bgms uh to use in that mode um, there's like some sometimes there's like character like shards that you uh, uh, get to like power up their like skills. Um, as you as you you know you have them in your party, you can like power up a specific skill or craft from them to power them up. Um, but it's just like it's not it's not like anything like too offensive. It's just funny that like that's a a carryover mechanic from uh, Reverie, and that's how it manifests in this game, which kind of it strengthens it like being more like a a sequel slash Gaiden sort of like hybrid uh in the in this game there's like a lot packed into this game um and like edit like people who only started the series of kuro and like jump into this game like even even if you like set aside all the plot things and what you need to know etc just like in sheer mechanics it'll like it might be sort of like a shell shock because a lot of the mechanics have just been fully opened up now um in this game so this this is going to be maybe a bit strange based on the history of this podcast and the site, but all this yeah. recent talk about Trails from Zero and 
now Kuro. I'm, I still have installed, and I don't keep a lot of Steam games installed, but installed for the longest time, I have Cold Steel 4. And I'm kind of like, I'm e- I'm eager to play that. I should play Cold Steel 4. <laughs> I'm so, not going to say anything more about TS. But, uh, yeah, we got enough backlash for that. Well, the thing is, the thing is, is that uh, I played Zero and Azure with the Geofront translation, and I'm not the sort of person to, like, care or put a lot of stake into, like, Steam achievements or things like that. So I don't have a lot of reason to, like, replay that, but I kind of want to anyway. I don't know. I, ha- I have, like, an enthusiasm enthusiasm for the series again with the um yeah, the zero the, both yeah. a zero uh release and now kuro just both yeah. kuro one and two release so which is good because that wasn't there a few years ago and now it's kind of come back yeah uh i i think i like i said my, my impression is like over 50 hours into kuro 2 so far like like the the gameplay itself is like you know obviously more interesting than kuro one because it's more expanded upon and like it's it's fun in that sense like, but a lot, a lot of like the way that the story unfolds and how this new like branching path narrative unfolds is very, like, I'm I'm very mixed on it. I'm very curious to see like like how they stick the landing on this. I think that it kind of hinges upon that because right now it's kind of like I'm I'm not really feeling how it kind of decides to develop its uh, narrative. The way you described it as like a sequel guide end thing is kind of fun because. Yeah, I, I don't know. I enjoy games that kind of like progress the story forward incidentally, but allow them just to kind of tell their own, maybe not self-contained thing, but a kind of a, a branching story or a story that's related but without having to feel like you have to constantly march forward towards some like septarian climax thing. So the fact mm-hmm. that the story, the way you're describing it, sounds a little bit more parallel to like the overarching narrative. I, I, I kind of enjoy that. And I kind of feel like Zero does that as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I enjoy that game a lot. So always kind of cool yeah. to see like the different sort of narrative uh, focus that these games have, and they don't always play it the same way. Yeah, but yeah, but uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to like you know discussing obviously more about this game as James progresses it and like and as more people get to play it whenever it comes out in the West and see how mm-hmm. they feel about it both this and Coral One. You know, I, I think there's like a really interesting new arc uh, for the series and just the way that how, how they decide to like both develop these characters from like their own arc perspective and how they de- decide to develop like the overall trail series uh, from mm. that perspective. Like it does uh, interesting things without all that stuff. Well, thank you, James and Josh, for talking about your time with Kuro too. I know it's going to be a little bit, I don't know if frustrating is the right word, but like for those of that are waiting for official English, we'll be waiting a while, but I think it's kind of cool to be able to talk about the game at least at a high level and talk about how it compares to the first game, what's exciting about this new arc, the fact that there is a little bit more enthusiasm for the series, at least between our uh participants here compared to a few years back and you know we're kind of kind of just going to keep rolling into this because azure is slated for early next year and then finally reverie which is a game hajimari that we've talked about in a lot of contexts that to me is kind of like i have no idea what to expect out of that it's kind of like this bridging game between the two sub arcs and then i know adam is going to probably like zero focus on nayuta because he thinks that's just the most interesting i don't know we're going to have a kind of a pretty constant presence of the series on this podcast over the next 12 months and i'm excited about that uh, so there are a couple uh, other games that we're going to talk about in a, in a brief manner here that we played through for the last week. Um, maybe now I'll actually get a chance to uh, hand over to James uh, to head up a section of this early part of the podcast. Uh, we have been obviously 
trying to cape on top of the frequent updates to Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak. And James, as our resident Monster Hunter expert, kind of seems like the most appropriate person to stay on top of the different title updates for Monster Hunter Rise. So uh, I believe, and James will correct me if I'm wrong, that we just recently had title update two progress for Monster Hunter Rise and was able that to go correct. hands on with that. So uh, James, just uh, go ahead and talk about, oh, did you have something to say, Josh? Yeah, before before we move on, I just want to say I I got a duck out for now. Like I I I talked about you know my games I have stuff stuff to do, but um, but uh, no, thanks yeah. for having me on. Yeah, yeah, no, you yeah, carried no the first uh, while of this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for for stopping by and sharing your experiences with those two games. Yeah, thank you. All right, see you, Josh. Goodbye, Josh. All right, so Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak, uh, I won't dilly-dally too long, but Title Update 2, we recently had James talk about Title Update 1 a few podcasts back. Uh, so go ahead and just give us the lowdown about what Title Update 2 incorporated and what your thoughts were on it. Okay, so Title Update 1 added in a bunch of new features that I like Anomaly Investigations. It had uh, the Metal Wraths, so like Gold Rathian, Silver Rathlos, and Lucent Nargakuga, and Seething Basilgeus. Um, title update two isn't as major of an update as title update one. There's no new mechanical stuff. The like biggest thing they've done is they've raised the uh, investigation level cap for anomaly investigations. So I believe it goes up to level 120 now. And as a result, they have added some additional augmentations that you can do for with uh, the curio crafting which requires materials that you get from monsters from investigations are above level 100. So that's pretty neat. It does add an additional like layer to the end game. Um, and they also added a number of new monsters. They added uh, two rare species, or I think one's a subspecies. Well, no, one's probably a variant. I think Blazing Esminus is a variant and probably not a subspecies because it's like, um it's element stuff is all the same it's just uh more <laughs> um mm -hmm. so there's blade um blazing no flaming espinus flaming espinus uh and there is violet mizutsune the main difference with violet mizutsune is that instead of it being a water like monster it, it instead of it being like silk bubbles it is oil bubbles so it's a fire uh monster oh, that's and fun. Yeah, um, a lot of people groan because there is already a ton of fire monsters in Rise and Sunbreak, understandably so. Uh, but in a vacuum, Violet Mizutsune is like an absolutely amazing fight. So it's like it's hard to be angry about it. And like the whole idea of what if the bubbles were oil bubbles and, and when everything's on fire, like literally everything, because um, both uh, Flaming Espinus and um, Violet Mizutsune are very difficult fights. There is a lot to them. And I, my favorite thing with uh, Flaming Espinus and um, especially is that he has this one move where he'll like start charging up this giant blast and he'll like get right on his like, like his legs and kind of like thump, like almost like standing straight up and it'll be like one, two, three, and then boom. And it's like, if you're anywhere close to him, it's like a nuke and it's, it doesn't matter how much armor you have dead. Just so it's, so it's like a more dangerous version of Teostra's uh, like yeah, self-destruct. Yeah. yeah. But um, so, yeah, both are good. Uh, not much really to say about them because they're just new monsters. They're well-designed. They add some new armor sets that are pretty uh, interesting. Um, 
The most interesting monster they added, though, was Risen Camellios. And I'm going to actually kind of ping pong this back to you because the best way to describe what Risen Elder Dragons are is, since you played World in Iceborne, did you ever hunt Arc-Tempered Elder Dragons? Yes. It's like that. So what? So Arc-Tempered, they have higher HP pools, they just deal a shit ton more damage, it's but kind they of just do like have a, new, they do have new attacks. Yeah, that's yeah. So Risen, why do they go with the Risen name? The idea is, is that um, so in the story of Sunbreak, you eventually find out that um, these uh, Curio are being uh, like not real, well, kind of controlled by Malzino because they have a symbiotic relationship. So. These risen elder dragons are elder dragons that they themselves have overcome the curio virus and have basically risen to becoming like a symbiotic relationship with the uh, with the same uh, parasites. So it's kind of similar to the idea behind apex monsters in for ultimate, not apex monsters in Rise. They really should have used a different fucking designation for for those monsters in English. Um, where it was like back then it was the, uh, I forget the exact name of the virus, but the virus that Gormagala gave monsters, any monsters that overcame it, they would be apex. And it's a similar idea where they'd be stronger. And I don't think they had extra moves. There was also some stuff where they were annoying to fight because uh, you had to use like Y stones, but that's besides the point. Um, so Risen Camellios. Has a ton of extra moves, hits a lot harder, it's a lot more aggressive. And specifically, the thing that really stood out to me and was, was the main reason why I kind of wanted to get it get through this update first before I started with uh started properly with Kuro 2 was that um it requires you to be MR 110 in order to fight it. Well, if I remember right, and uh sorry, I leaned away from the mic there. In world, once you got to master rank 100, nothing pushed past that, if I remember there, right. Yeah, so no new monsters did, but there were a few quests in Iceborne that did something similar, where um, it, once you got to MR-125 in Iceborne, you would unlock the quest that would let you hunt a Silver Rathalos and a Gold Rathian in the same arena. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and when you talk about comparing Risen to Arc Tempered, so the hardest fight in World is Fatalis, but that fight to me is almost more like execution on the specific manner of the fight, like the way you have to utilize the, um, not the ballista, but like the rapid fire artillery and things like that. But the hardest, just straight like one on one fight, independent of mechanics, was the Arc Tempered. Uh, what's the ice dragon Volcana. name? Volcana. The, and I remember yeah. that fight. I only ever did it once. I um I use I utilized like all the cheap tricks in the book. I had a fortified gem. I used like the the cat moxie like freebie death. I died two times. And when I finally beat that fight, it was like the most adrenaline like rush. Just like oh thank God oh my I, I did it so. Uh, I kind of am not surprised that Rise and Sunbreak have gone to like that similar sort of tiering of their Elder Dragons. And Camellios himself is, uh, I've never fought Camellios before, before Rise, because he's not in World. Um, but just a very interesting dragon fight. Because in World, a lot of the dragon fights are just kind of like elementally themed. But Camellios is a little bit more intricate than that with the uh, with the cloaking uh, mechanic and the poison. 
So I think I think he does poison. But and then I I saw your um I think it was a tweet where you're like, how about a risen Valstrax? And I'm like, oh, please, please no. <laughs> that just sounds uh, so none of these have been announced yet, but we do know that more elder dragons are coming. And uh in another Discord server I'm in, they have said that based off of data mines. Like the main three elder dragons, so obviously like Camellias we already have, but like Tiastra and Kushala, those are definitely going to get risen elder dragons. I feel like everyone expected that, but apparently the elder dragons added in Sunbreak and Valstrax might be getting them too. And I think the most terrifying thing I've ever heard is risen Valstrax. Yeah. Now, uh, so I played through Sunbreak. But I barely touched like the original Sunbreak Endgame with the Afflicted monsters. I think I fought two Afflicted. Like one's the bear, and the second one is the I don't remember. But I did. I kind of stopped. I kind of didn't progress past that. Is Afflicted monsters like not a thing now past the title updates? No, they still are because um, in order to augment your equipment, even if like you make a new set of armor for like from Risen Camellios. In order to augment that, you're going to need like material from anomaly investigations. So it's okay. like, well, the regular, well, I mean, you still can just do regular like anomaly hunts. But ever since title update one, where they added in the anomaly investigations, that's what everyone does. It's because they give more MR and it's like more interesting because it's semi randomized what you're going to get, and especially once you get to a higher anomaly levels you uh get more and more interesting fights like i think i unlocked a fight where it was like a uh it was a magnamalo a kashala deora and then i believe it was an afflicted aurora somnicant or something like that and that was like for all like all in one fight for an anomaly investigation it was like lot of fun but also god they they can they can quickly become fairly difficult yeah so i was just reminding myself like sunbreak came out late june i thought it was earlier than that it hasn't been out that long yeah it's been out for just over three months now because i was thinking ahead like i don't think that they're because when they monster hunter world was almost it was like fringe games as a service like there was frequent frequent updates for that i think sunbreak it feels like it's a little bit more of a slower pace but just the fact that capcom has supported that game so thoroughly i think has been pretty commendable i wouldn't say say it's slower because we've been pretty consistently every like month and a half or so like getting a major title update maybe maybe i'm only saying it's slower because for world i was always there day one when they added elatrion and or added Also, or whatever and here i'm a little bit more hands off yeah also one thing to consider is that um when iceborne came out on pc it did have a bit of an accelerated uh that's true because it was playing catch up and with sunbreak they've been hand in hand which is very commendable because we've i've been wanting that for years now yeah so that i was i was kind of thinking ahead about like one of our categories for the end of the year is best continuing support. And we gave it to Iceborne 2020, right? Or 2019? As I, I good as Sunbreak is doing for continued support, I'm just going to be honest here. That is Endwalker's uh, I was, category. I was going to say, because, because our c- 
our our coverage is December to December. When we go back to last December 2021, Endwalker is going to be present in our upcoming yeah, game of and, year cast. And like, and like just looking at like what um Endwalker has added over the last like nine months has been a very, very consistent um like cadence of like massive, like really like solid updates. Well, not only like, yeah, not not to get too much on a tangent, but you've talked uh, at length about the new raid tiering, the um, uh, P5S through P8S. I forget what that stands for, um, but the uh, the island sanctuary stuff, like the more casual updates as well. I can easily see that six point uh, one had like the uh, ultimate, like D, like DSR, which oh yeah, mm-hmm. like was a huge thing. It had the first uh, stage of the alliance raid, which was like universally beloved. It had the um, PvP revamp, which was which people actually like PvP in 14 now. It's like it's this is like a major tangent, but like there's like as far as I like as far as I can see it, there's like no argument for any other game than Unwalker this year for that mm-hmm. board. Well, to get back on topic, uh, I do. I was looking ahead, and there is a title update three for Sunbreak slated for winter, so we don't know if that means uh, December. It's late November. I do need to update the roadmap article. Ah, uh, okay. Um, I will probably let that come out first. And then, so I'll have, once I get back, I do want to get back to Sunbreak because I enjoyed the game a lot. I kind of had to peel myself away because I didn't want to get like sucked in like the way I did World so I could play other games. So I'm kind of looking forward. Like when I, when I uh, consumed quote unquote World, it was always piecemeal. I was like, all right, here's the Alatrion update. Here's the this update. For now, if I go through, if I, once I load up Sunbreak in late November, early December with all title updates ahead of me, it's almost going to be like an expansion, expansion. And I'm actually kind of like, you know, looking forward to that. That'll be really fun. Nope. So uh, thank you for uh, going through some of the details of title update two and always being like on top of everything, Monster Hunter. Uh, we'll have a little bit more Monster Hunter adjacent news to talk about later on this podcast. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, the last game that we're going to talk about very briefly here before we go into some of our article shout outs is something that I was not planning to talk about uh, when I was making this podcast outline late last night, early this morning. I didn't know this existed. And then it just came up like we were in chat um, and this came up and I'm like, oh, I want to talk about this at least a little bit. And I'm going to we're going to involve Chow in the conversation here. Uh, so, Chow, you always seem to bring like an outside perspective of a game that you've brought up that you're that you're playing like a new translation of or a new mod of. And you always seem to bring up like some pretty interesting topics that I would otherwise not be um, exposed to. And you told us about a website and a game project titled Advance Wars by Web. As in, like a browser-supported Advance Wars fan community. So, Advance Wars, obviously, we've got the HD like one and two pack that were that is uh, kind of been on again, off again due to the uh, you know world events and the release cadence. But this is like a web-supported browser game of the original Advance Wars modding community that you have had some time with in the last week, and you kind of wanted to have a little bit of a time here to talk about it. So. What is Advance Wars by Web? And like, how were you introduced to it? Okay, so the background story was I was playing Fire Emblem uh, 4 with a buddy of mine. I was trying to trying to convince him to play Fire Emblem 4 and tell him that big be- because, maps are not be- that bad. Be- because we're not actually getting the 4 remake we wanted, apparently. Yes. So I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to showcase him 4 and showing how easy the game is and how 
how the big scale map is nothing to be afraid of. And then he was trying to introduce me to other games too, because he's also big into grid grid style strategy games. So he was introducing me to Wargroove. Uh, I think we could cover Wargroove before, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, we covered it. It's like an yes. indie Advance Wars. Like yeah, it's like yes, an but... indie Advance Wars spiritual successor. Like so. Yeah, he was trying to introduce me to that game, but he was trying to tell me that the PvP in it was god-awful, and the devs doesn't seem to be updating the game as often. And he said, there's a better solution. And he told me the better solution is Advanced Wars by Web. And that's how I was introduced to this game. And how, how it goes is that one of the best things about this game is that when you play against other players and you want to... Let's just say that you don't want to play today. You can kind of resume the game like several days later. On uh, the max amount of turns you can take is seven days. Maybe, maybe they don't want to resume the game immediately, but you can wait a couple days to resume your match, right? Uh, which is not a thing that you could do with other games because the moment that you close the game, it counts as that you rage quit or you disconnected or or your system went to sleep. Then it's game over, right? So. Anyways, he was trying to introduce me to that and that you can play as long as you want. And how the game works is that the... Uh, what is it? It's based on Advanced Wars 2 uh, balance. So if any like characters, like the commanders from Advanced Wars 1, it will not take that balancing. It'll take the balancing that they were introduced at the second game. So some of your heroes are nerfed. Some might be slightly adjusted. So if you played the first game, one of the best commanders is Max. He's this guy that makes tanks go insanely OP, and and he got nerfed in the second game. And so it will take the balance that he had from the second game. And then there is heroes that are introduced from the DS game, the Dual Strike. I think that's what the DS game is called. And I think so. Yes. And the ratings for those characters are based on the Dual Strike ratings so they will not be based on the advanced wars 2 balancing structure so so if there is a character that's introduced in dual strike they're usually a lot weaker than the previous games because they're a lot more fine-tuned than than the original game or they're they're more like fine-tuned for like tag team which i don't think the system has and then what what is it uh the game has a a tier system so you can play with a tier list because they already have a tier on who's broken and who's not broken so you can kind of align yourself it's like what is banned and what is not banned and if you want to give the other player a handicap or something you can play a crappier tier characters and there is like four tiers of the ratings so you can pick like last boss from the first game which is kind of busted but also not the most busted hero so it has all this kind of caveats that you want to deal with. So, uh, anyways, well, I think this is a very interesting take for anyone that's into Advance Wars. If they can't wait for the bootcamp remaster to come out, I mean, if you love the PvP of uh, playing against other players, I think it's a thing. Unless Nintendo shut this down because they mentioned it on this podcast. Uh, we don't have that much of a following. But yeah, I just thought that this was really interesting just because I've not played the original Advance Wars, so I was really looking forward to boot camp. And in case you don't remember, they announced back in March due to the um, happenings in Russia and Ukraine that the game was infinitely delayed. And then as Chow was discussing the Advance Wars by web uh, experience, 
I double checked, and apparently the the current update of Advance Wars Reboot Camp is that it's still on its way. This was a, a tweet by Stephen Totillo, Stephen Totillo of Axios. So Reboot Camp, I'm guessing we'll see at some point next year, but there hasn't been any clear news since it was originally delayed back in March. Um, but I know that a lot of people have a lot of nostalgia for the series from back when it was um, uh, introduced on the Game Boy, and the most recent entry is not dual strike but days of ruin right also on the ds like 2008 it's been over 10 years um yeah but um, that game is not in, in this advanced wars by web because it's a complete new setting and the heroes there are too weak to compete against the commanders from the old ds games and the game boy advance games yeah yeah it looks like advanced wars by web is specifically for those with nostalgia for the gba games one and two so yeah no, but this is this is a cool project, and it seems pretty active. I went to the website. We'll probably link it in the podcast post as well. But I see that there have been maps that have been uploaded like today, three by the same user, and like plenty of plenty of activity on it. So kind of fun. The, the asynchronous multiplayer that you've described, like having different you know number a window to complete your turns. I think it seems pretty fun. Uh, so just a really cool project. So I think it's cool that we have a little bit of a window here to kind of highlight it for those that really loved Advance Wars and kind of wanted to see what, uh, what, uh, what, you know, fan made options are out there and available to, to stay invested in the series while they're waiting for news from, uh, reboot camp to, to materialize. All right. And that, that covers us for the like games we've been playing section of the podcast at the start, which uh, a decent amount of time spent on that. But as, uh, as we discussed last week, it's been a little bit of a slower on the news front since TGS, which I think we're all okay with. However, over the last week, we have put up several different features of different sorts up on the website. So I want to take a few minutes here to kind of highlight what our staff and contributors have been working on that are up on rpgsite.net. So the first one uh, that I obli am obligated to talk about is that Josh Torres put up his Valkyrie Elysium review, which is uh, up on the site. Uh, another review about a game that we've already talked about but didn't have written up quite yet is for Dio Field Chronicle, which obviously just came up, uh, came out late in September. We talked about it as our headliner on the podcast last week, but uh, Adam was able to put up a review for Dio Field Chronicle and get that up on the site. And uh, Adam, uh, I read through your review, and I think it is probably one of like the easiest reading, best reviews that you've written. It's like a very, very clear review about what you liked about Dealfield Chronicle and what you thought it did poorly. So just letting you know that, and I do think that anyone that has any passing interest in this game should uh, should go ahead and give that a read. I don't know if you want to spend a couple minutes talking about like your your final final impressions of the game, or just let your uh, let your review speak for itself. Well, the only thing I'll say is this is one of those games where like like. I, 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 this is going to sound corny, but like I wrote my review with my heart, but I scored it with my head. So, like, if you are the type of person who just goes scrolls to the bottom, like, you gave it a seven, like, yeah, don't forget the score. Just read the text. Yeah. yeah. Reading that review just reminds me of something I said, like, uh, well, I always say where it's like, there's games that I would give like a seven that I probably enjoyed more than games I would give a nine. It makes no sense, but reading that deal field review, it's like, I'm getting that vibe. Basically, the the thesis of Adam's review is that the game is more interesting and unique than it is good. But being interesting and unique is a good attribute to have, you know, on its own. And it's just a game that is very bring something new to the table. something that we haven't seen before. I'm currently like very near the end of the game. I was actually streaming it in our discord chat late last night. And I, I'm not near the end yet, but I do 
really enjoy some of the narrative uh, kind of differences that the game makes. It's very bold in several ways and doesn't play it safe uh, from that aspect. Uh, it is a little bit too easy. And Adam, Adam had the same opinion on his review for a strategy game. But I do think it is a game that I do. Th it's more interesting than good. But being it's very, very interesting, which a lot of tactics games just feel like Final Fantasy Tactics at home or Fire Emblem at home. One of the games I played earlier in the year was uh, an indie game, Symphony of War, the Nephilim Saga, which really kind of felt like it was in that other camp where it's just kind of is a um, an imitation of an existing series where Diofield Chronicle is not that. It's something completely different and unique. And I think it's an interesting IP to Square Enix to hold on to going forward. So uh Final note is basically go ahead and listen to our last week's podcast if you want to hear an extended discussion on the Deal Field Chronicle. And go ahead and give Adam's review up on the site. It's a very easy read, and I think it's a very fun read for one of our reviews, one of the best ones we've done this year, I think. So go ahead and give that a look at. We also have a few other reviews and previews up on the site that I want to make sure I draw attention to. Uh, here's a game that no one on the podcast, I think, has gotten time to just yet, but we have introduced, and that is the surprise third entry for the Voice of Cards franchise from Square Enix. So Paige, once again, uh, was able to go hands-on with Voice of Cards and played Voice of Cards, The Beasts of Burden, and wrote up a review for that game on the site. As someone who hasn't played that series, but has talked to Adam about it uh, and read through Paige's review, it sounds like The Beasts of Burden is a bit of a weaker entry in the series and it kind of feels at this point that it's not clear exactly what square enix's like ambitions were with these games this but it's funny because it's like obviously i've heard like adam and uh it, it was page that reviewed it right yeah yeah, yeah pages like uh thoughts on it uh but i have a buddy of mine who's played who's a big fan of the first two uh, games and he's played the most recent one and he thinks it might be his favorite so i Oh, okay. No, it's good to have multiple impressions. So Paige, I think, scored it the lowest of our Voice of Cards reviews. Yeah, her but, final sentence is just her third. It's her basically places third of three. But uh, James is uh, James is a friend. Seems to think very highly of it. So Voice of Cards. It kind of feels like if you played the first two games, uh, you kind of know what you're getting into. Um, Adam, between the first two games, they're not really connected, right? Uh, the so first two it, games actually are connected. Um, in a very loose way, but they're, oh. they're technically canonically connected. The third game doesn't seem to be, unless I missed something. Oh, but you haven't played it yet, right? I played it. Oh, you did play the third you. game. Oh, okay. Yeah, my favorite is still Forsaken Maiden. Which is the second one. Which is the second one. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. For some reason, I was going into discussing this topic, assuming you hadn't gotten to it yet. So I guess I can just yeah, hand I it off it. to you if, you if you want to talk about it for like mm -hmm. 60 seconds, like what your, what your thoughts were on the, um, the third Voice of Cards game. So basically, the first game is the most traditional. It's also the easiest, uh, where you basically kind of get a party of characters and play through it, kind of like a really traditional Japanese RPG. The second game, its sort of gimmick, which uh, I'll actually say probably quite a few people don't like, but I do, is that you have two main characters, and then you kind of have like your third and your fourth party slots kind of like rotate out with other characters who do not get any stronger. Um, and... So for for me, it, it's it's more it just kind of feels like a puzzle or some sort. Like, how do I use these characters and like what are their abilities and how do they play? And like as in different parts of the game, this is for second made in the second game. You're kind of have to play it a little bit differently depending depending on what your party is. But you cannot like grind them and power them up. It's just not how the game works. Um, the third game is you have a set party, 
but you don't get skills, the gimmick here is that you basically capture monsters, and that, those are your skills. So, like, each game has a gimmick. Um, the second game is my favorite. Uh, it's the most challenging. I thought the systems were the most interesting, but it's definitely not the... It's definitely not the most, like, easiest game just to kind of, you know, cruise through because of the way it's designed. But yeah, the, the third game, it's basically got the, the monster capturing gimmick, which is fine. I, it's probably my second favorite, like, in the middle. <laughs> but I do kind of... Like, these games are obviously obviously not, like... They're very, very, very modest budget games. This is literally their third game in 12 months. Cause I think... When did the first game come out? Like, last November? <laughs> Uh, it came out last October, I think. Oh, so pretty much three games in a year. Um, but uh, it's kind of like it does kind of lose its luster in a way. But it, like no one forced me to play three games in a year. You don't have to play them all in one year. But it's I mean, the, the release cadence is definitely interesting, like in terms of this uh, this you know philosophy of like well, not, not so only many the so release quickly. cadence but the like announce and release cadence yeah it's i think both forsaken maiden and beasts of burden which is two and three were announced like two weeks before they released just like hey we're making another one and then two weeks later here it is and for the first game they really if i remember correctly they really to- uh they really kind of pushed the uh um, Ijioko Taro, you know, the director of the Nier series, he's the creative director here, and so on and so forth. Um, it really doesn't feel like a Yoko Taro game. He was creative director, but he's not, like, credited as the main writer. He's not credited as, like, the actual director of the game. So, like, I'm sure he had, you know, some kind of overseeing kind of input to the game. But it does feel, this is maybe perhaps a little bit cynical on my part, that it's, like, they only just attached his name to it just because they know that that would sell marketable. copies. Yeah, yeah. So. But I, to their credit, it seems like for the other two games in the series, they haven't quite leaned on that as heavily. It was their yeah, first I, game, I feel which makes too. sense because it was a new IP and they wanted to try to market it and put a, put a recognizable name on it. Um, and all three of these games are pretty brief. I don't know, like if you remember what your runtime like were. 10, for... 12, 10 to twelve hours each. Oh, okay. So I think I still think that that is like good it's really cool like we've kind of had it's in the summer we had a bunch of like i'm thinking like xenoblade like giant epic games or even earlier in the year like elden ring so it's kind of cool that we have games like valkyrie elysium deal field that are 20 25 hour games and now we have voice of cards you know a 10 hour game always kind of good to have the different variety and then i guess you got trails from zero which is probably like 40 50 60 hours i'm trying to remember what my playthrough was on that um kind of good to have the variety and size of rpg experiences so i, feel like, I do appreciate- i feel like separate from the release cadence just from like a library catalog perspective it's nice to say like hey we're, we're square enix we have a lot of rpgs you want something kind of uh shorter and you know bite-sized hey we have a couple of these voice of cards games pick one and try it yeah you know? i appreciate it from that like catalog variety perspective mm-hmm. but yeah go ahead and give a pages review for uh voice of cards a piece of burden review we have it up on the site and you can go ahead also and listen to our previous episodes of the podcast where we talk about uh, the uh, the other episodes in that series. A couple other preview or feature write-ups on the site. Uh, one of which I don't think we have to give too much uh, attention to, but we will obviously give it a shout out here. On the podcast two or three weeks ago, we talked about the limited time demo for Wolong Fallen Dynasty. This is the new project from uh, the Neo and Neo 2 devs at, over at Team Ninja and Koei Tecmo, uh, set during the, the Three Kingdoms era of Japan. 
sorry, not Japan, China, China. Uh, and we talked about how both James and Josh felt on that demo back when it released. But uh, James just went ahead and with writ 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 that's not a verb wrote up a, a preview a verb if you live in like renaissance era city <laughs> anyways james uh, james wrote up his impressions on the wolong demo and compared it to neo 3 and how it feels like a different series which obviously it is so it's kind of good that it doesn't feel like just a coat of paint it feels like it's a whole new uh experience uh james i don't know if you have any other like insight that you want to give about your write-up on wolong fallen dynasty or if we should just mm -hmm. go ahead and Go ahead. I mean, it was a demo that anyone that had a PS5 or Xbox could play. And I think I already kind of talked about it last week. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah, yep, just going ahead. And it's a game that we're really excited for. It'll probably show up on our most anticipated list for 2023. Because I do know we have a handful of people here that thought really highly of the of uh, Team Ninja's work on the Neo series, especially Neo 2, and everything about Wolong Fallen Dynasty's demo, I think, is kind of checking all the right boxes. So go ahead and give that uh, preview a read. Now, is that demo still available, or did it No, time it's out? not. Uh, it, it timed, timed out. out. Ah, darn. But if you... Uh, we do have the, the discussion of the demo on the previous episode of the podcast, and then we obviously have, for posterity, the, the full write-up on demo impressions from James up on the site. Uh, here's another game that we kind of... It was kind of a footnote of TGS, but it ended up being something that has kind of taken off on social media a bit, and this is the um, Switch port of Near Automata ga uh, Game of the Yorha Edition. So the Switch port of Near Automata. Uh, it was something that was kind of uh, part of Square Enix's TGS coverage, but wasn't a new game, wasn't a new experience. So it kind of like fell into like the second tier of coverage. But our resident Switch expert, uh, Cullen Black, was able to go hands-on with Near Automata for Switch. And to state it plainly, he basically thinks that this is one of the best porting efforts on the Switch that we have seen, especially from Square Enix, which has kind of like in the same company that resorted to like uh streaming ports for the kingdom Hearts series and things like that but based on cullen's experience with near automata for switch and it's collab corroborated by a few other outlets that had similar impressions it seems like that this game is a very well-made port uh the developer of the port was virtuous who has also done similar work for i believe they did the pc port for near automata uh for the windows store do i have that right I'll have to check that. But this the Nier Automata port for Switch seems like it is a very rock-solid 30, um, 1080p docked, 720p uh, portable, very, very steady 30 FPS. And this is kind of interesting because we tweeted about this as we would any of our articles, and it kind of got picked up by a lot of Square Enix fans, a lot of Nier fans. I think Google like promoted it on their Google Discover things. And the, the amount of feedback to this game has varied from... Hooray, what a great Switch port. Just general enthusiasm for the game itself. A few people that are saying, like, why not just play it on PC or Steam? Or why not just play it on PS5? Or I have a Steam Deck, why do I need Switch? It's been interesting to see the gamut of responses to this. But we are not here to pick console winners and losers. We're just here to say, like, if you want to play this game on Switch, it's a very good Switch port. There, there is one tweet just from, you know, a Twitterer. That's just like, hey, I want to play this game, but I only have a Switch. And that's like, exactly. That's why they made this port. Like, I agree with this poster. Like, now more people can play it. 
it who we you know we're not trying to say like it's better than any other version we're just saying hey it's a really good port uh so if you have a switch and you're interested in this game you can soon play it and, yeah, and it's, it's a very not, good game and it's not even just like uh colon that's uh been the only person on the site to say no this is really like an ironically good version of the game like I've said it. I'm not sure. I, if saw, a, I saw a VG247 uh, put up a post on it, and it wasn't Alex. Yeah. It, was, it was someone else. Yeah, but uh, like Alex has at least said like internally that he he feels, felt the same way because he played it at the uh, Square Enix press event in London a few weeks ago. So it's like everyone that's played the Switch port has, got, has come around saying this is a, actually a surprisingly good port. By the way, I remember Virtuous also did like Sometimes I forget, like, they also did, like, the Final Fantasy XII Zodiac Age port for Switch, which, I, as far as I know, is also considered pretty darn good. And Sometimes I do want to forget, like, myself, oh, yeah, the, uh, Zodiac the, Windows Age Store, the Windows Store version of Nier Automata that kind of encouraged Square Enix to update the Steam port. It wasn't Virtuous, it was Q-Lock. Was it the, Q-Lock? The Pol- yeah, the Polish porting house. So it feels like a, uh, Square Enix has kind of contracted with several developers uh, for this game for different platforms, but it sounds like that the Switch port just specifically is a very quality way to experience this game. And it was our game of the year 2018? 17? 17. Uh, 17 so, yeah. So yeah, uh, Obviously, like if Cullen thinks it's a great Switch port, that is his bread and butter. That is his specialty. So luckily, this is a game that we think very highly of in general. I think all of us have pretty high opinions of it here on the site. Um, But uh, a good port and a good way to experience the game. If you've been waiting for the uh, being able to play that on the couch or on your Switch or wherever uh, you like to play your games on the portable form factor like that. So go ahead and give his specific impressions a read up on the site if you're interested. But basically, it is just two thumbs up from from Cullen uh, for Nier Automata on Switch. Uh, the last feature that I have is one that Adam is uh, the headliner of, and that is something that he does every year. And we do give plenty of call out for this on the podcast, but it is so much work and so much effort. And I get so much like you know, utility out of it that it's something I do like to give a lot of credit to. And that is the RPGs list for each calendar year that Adam puts together. We've called out the RPGs of 2022 list a few times this year as we've had several games, you know, finalize the release dates and come out. Uh, Adam has gone ahead and put together the first edition of the RPGs of 2023 list. So that came up on the site in the last seven days. Obviously, the list right now is kind of, I don't want to say meager. There's a lot of games on it, but a lot of them are not dated specifically. But it does kind of give a very quick glimpse into the sorts of things that we can expect from 2023. However, I just want to say to all the RPG developers out there, February is full. Um, go somewhere else. February can't fit anymore. I'm sorry. So yeah, February 2023 has uh, Hogwarts Legacy, if you're interested in that. We've got Labyrinth of Galleria, which we're going to talk about that in... That's an interesting one, specifically about the news of that release date. We'll talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> I kept, now, now that I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh no, I should have discussed this later. Uh, there's a game called Wild Hearts uh, from EA that is coming out next February. Later. More on that later. Um, like a Dragon Ashin, the, uh, the modern uh, remaster remake of that RGG spinoff is coming out in February. Octopath Traveler 2, February. We talked about that last week, or sorry, two weeks ago. Uh, Atelier Rise of 3, also February. So yes, uh, February is full. 
Um, but yeah, go ahead and give the, if you type in RPGs 2023, we hope that our website, we know a lot of other different outlets do this sort of thing, but I do think that Adam does the best job. I'm biased. Uh, but we try to make sure that we try to keep all of those, uh, handy and useful and i kind of bookmark that to try to look at what i what games i'm going to be playing each month and also if you want to know what games we're going to be covering each month that's pretty much the best way to kind of get a look ahead at what we're going to be looking at um so rpgs of 2023 list we've got the first version of that cataloged up on the site so thank you so much adam for um for putting that together for us because it is incredibly useful all right, a uh, new section of this podcast this is going to be a little bit more brief but i basically just talked about uh, just belied the two kind of headliners for this week. Uh, the first one is we talked about Electronic Arts working with developer Omega Force on a new monster hunting series for PC and consoles uh, last week, or it was either last week or two weeks ago. Uh, this was untitled, but it was basically them announcing their partnership with the development studio. But now we've gotten an official announcement trailer for their first project, and that is Wild Hearts. This is a Monster Hunter-like game from Omega Force, who made the Tokaiden series. Uh, and we got our first reveal trailer for this game. Uh, and it's quite a beefy one. It's two and a half minutes. It's kind of slower paced, and it's a lot of... Um, setting up the premise of the game it has kind of a, a narrator very slowly discussing what what the character of the narrative is but it does also show several snippets of gameplay or gameplay like footage for this for what wild hearts is and i don't know maybe i'll just hand it over to our um our monster hunter expert james uh when you look at this wild hearts project from electronic arts what is your initial impression of what you saw Three-player co-op, huh? Yeah. Why free? <laughs> yeah, that's that's like the one thing I'm curious about. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see later, but it's like, I mean, Omega Force has like history working on hunting games. They did Tokiden, which uh, Tokiden Two especially was actually fairly good. So uh, seeing them get a much higher budget and it being next gen only, it's going to be very interesting to see how uh, this ends up. Uh, other than that, not much else to say yet because it's like gotta get a chance to play it for ourselves. Yeah, the reveal trailer—it's not—it's not the best reveal trailer that I've seen. Um, it's very, very kind of got like a, a narrator that very slowly says some like mealy mouth things about like what the player you know represents for their nation or something like that. Uh, but the thing that I will say that for the gameplay adjacent footage that they show, it seems like there's a, uh, a focus on like using tools and crafting. Like they, they kind of build a tower. It shows like a catapult at this one point. It shows like a bomb at this one point. I think it shows a ballista at another. So it has almost kind of like these building mechanics fashioned in some way, which I think kind of gives this game or could potentially give this game um, some sort of unique identity. And I kind of spoiled this back when we talked about the RPG list, but the release date for this game is set for February 11th. So it's that's not too far away. Uh, it, it feels kind of interesting because back in the era of like late PSP, early PS Vita, it kind of feels like the monster hunting genre for like uh, both the Monster Hunter series itself and um, kind of the games that fashioned themselves after it was in a pretty good place. Even though I didn't play Monster Hunter at the time, surprisingly, I did play uh, Tokaiden or Tweakaden, whatever you call it. Uh, I also even played, uh, oh, what was the one with the like demon book 
that came out on PS2 and Vita. Oh yeah, I played. I didn't play Delta, but I played the original Soul Sacrifice. But then ever since Monster Hunter World specifically, like quote unquote, made it big, we haven't seen a lot of other like competitors in that space. But you know, until now, until Wild Hearts. So I think that that obviously Monster Hunter World sold a shit ton. Monster Hunter Rise sold a slightly smaller shit ton, uh, despite not being multi-platform outside of Switch and PC. So I do, I honestly understand like why a publisher like Electronic Arts, someone that we very rarely talk about on our site in general, is trying to get, you know, find a partnership with someone that has a proven track record like Omega Force. So I feel like I'm kind of like, we're kind of like going over some of the same speculation that we did when this partnership was first announced last week. Um, but uh, we have some details up for the official announcement on the site. For those that really like to dig into the details, um, it kind of shows uh, some details on some of the specific monsters that we fight. One of the ones that gets the most look in of the trailer is like a tusk boar-like monster called King Tusk. Uh, there's a wolf called De- Death Stalker. There's an ape called Lavaback. Um, and I guess these are uh, kind of based on uh, not Oni, but kind of like myths of the uh you know east asia china and japan and a lot of these do get a look in on the trailer specifically about how they might play like and things like that so uh the we do know that we're going to get an extended gameplay trailer uh early in october for the fifth so when does the fifth line up in the week today is the first so yeah so by next week we might be able to discuss more detail and more general uh about what the gameplay looks like if we have more gameplay footage uh, for next week's podcast. But Wild Hearts, you know, we're going to start dotting in uh, surprise entries for next year. And maybe this might show up on our also on our most anticipated list for 2023. But always kind of cool to see a, a new hat in the arena, so to speak, with Electronic Arts and Omega Force returning to the genre. Uh, so no reason not to be excited for this. And this is a kind of changing tact here, but another um, release date for February. Is it actually the same day? No, it's not quite the same day. It's the same week. Uh, Adam, am I allowed to share this release date for a, a Labyrinth of Galleria? This is a strange one. Yeah, it's on. It's on the Steam page now. It's on the Steam page now. Yeah, All right, so I'll, I'll, I'll explain. No, uh, thank you, Adam. So basically, NAS America, just like any publisher, you know, they tweet out. You know, there's little fun things and announcements about the games they're working on and coming out soon. So they tweeted out, which is all it is. It's just like a 30 second little like teaser trailer kind of introducing the Lantern character in the upcoming game, uh, the Labyrinth of Galleria, the Moon Society, or just Labyrinth of Galleria, the Moon Society, excuse me. And it's just like a little teaser introducing the Lantern character, who is in a way your player character, right? James has played this. Um, But then at the end of the trailer, they have like a release date that wasn't announced before, February 14th, next year. And it's just like, oh, I guess they kind of just tucked away the release date in the uh, in this little tweet. It, like, they hadn't, up- at the time, they hadn't updated the website. There's nothing on YouTube, nothing on store pages, no press release on our end. Just like, oh, I guess that's the date. And I actually emailed them about it just to verify. And they were like, yeah, that was a mistake. We're going to announce that soon. But we just kept it up. So it's official, but not not technically announced, I guess. But um, since then, like James said, they have updated the Steam page anyway with the uh, February 14th date. So that is also one of the February games. I am very interested in this game. James is not interested in this game because he's already played it. I'm interested <laughs> because uh, I'll just be blunt. That translation better be good. <laughs> First one was good. So Yeah, yeah. But 
I, I do understand that part of what made the first one's translation good was a an employee that basically had a lot of free time to do an extra like editing pass for refrain and was like a, a result of having to wait for ports because they had like Labyrinth for Refrain's localization started life as they were going to do the beat version. Then the PS4 version came out and they were working on the translation. It was still going to be Vita PS4. Then when Disgaea 5 uh, Complete came out on Switch and did really well, they were like, well, we can't not release this on Switch. So it got delayed even further for like another year so they could get the Switch version. So that was a case where very explicitly they had plenty of time to give it some 10 or 11 care. Galeria, even though it's been a similarly long time, like wait for the localization, I, I've heard that a lot of uh, NIS America's like bandwidth has been kind of uh, sucked up by Falcom games, which makes sense. So understandably, I, so yeah. Also, I mean, it's this is probably worth mentioning that like they haven't confirmed this guy seven yet, <laughs> which is kind of strange. Um, so yeah, I. Again, I, I will assume it will be good. I want it to be good, and I and I'm and I don't like mistake this as me saying it's going to be a train wreck. It's just like this game. The stars aligned for the first one in a way. Yeah, and it's uh, like and but especially for Galeria, like Refrain's story was good eventually, but Galeria is like even more of a focus on story in a lot of ways, and it's like can't mess that up. You can't mess that up. Hopefully, it's good. What did you think of the voice acting from the snippets that they showed? It, it was very, very rudimentary. The uh, dub, the voice direction seems fine, at least from that one scene. But it's against one scene, so yeah, as someone who plays primarily dubs, but has played games like the Ox series in Japanese, um, it's very, very hard to judge, judge a dub from an out of context scene. Sometimes I'll listen to a cut scene. And I'll think, oh, this sounds terrible. And I only listen to dubs and I think it sounds terrible. Then once you play the game, like actually in context of the game, your impressions are just slightly different. So don't want to don't want to extrapolate too much from a vertical audio slice. But yeah, uh, this comes out February 14th. We talked about the Switch version. It is also coming out for PlayStation 4 and 5 and PC. And then, of course, the uh, Japanese versions also came out on Vita. So rip Vita. But I know that this is a game that James thought really highly of and Adam has been really excited for. So not too long away for this either. So February 14th for Labyrinth of Galleria, the Moon Society. And I, it, we've been waiting a while for that. I know we've been wondering when we're going to see this for greater than 12 months now. So for those that have thought really highly of that, uh, Coven of Dusk, which was the first game in the subseries, uh, we have the follow-up not too long away. So those were the those were the two, like, main it's kind of weird because even though those are both release dates for wild hearts and uh labyrinth of galleria um those were kind of like the closest things we had this week to like headline news uh, a lot of these other things are just snippets of games that are already announced things we're already looking forward to or some other release dates from some smaller titles uh but we'll go ahead and go through here uh we got a new update for the november release of harvestella we basically got quite a big newsletter that gave us a lot more screenshots, a lot more character art, um, a new city called uh, Chatola. And basically just for those that are interested in this game, we got 
just kind of a a breadth of news across like different features of the game. I guess we're only a month away now because this is early November. So we're kind of in that that section of the marketing cycle for Square Enix titles. We got uh, an art for the character Ken, who is an inventor character. And then we got an art for a character named Emo, who is a tavern singer. And as with the other art character art for this game i think it's really well done we've got a lot of screenshots for both like the farming elements and the and the ui elements as well as the characters themselves so for those interested in harvestella adam's got this all up on the site uh or sorry josh put this up josh has got this all up on the site here's a little tiny piece of news but actually one that i think is kind of interesting uh we're kind of in that section of marketing cycle for the upcoming pokemon scarlet and violet also coming out in november so only a month away on that uh Scarlet and Violet, at least the marketing so far, has felt pretty light on new Pokemon. We, uh, I think we've only had like a dozen announced, and that's not including like we haven't seen like the evolutions for the starters. But we did get a new Pokemon announced last week, and that is for a like a regional specific Diglett evolution named Wiglet. And this thing kind of creeps me out. It's an aquatic Diglett that is water type that is white and is like six feet long and sticks out of the ground. We mentioned in a previous podcast that like, it seems like the way they're introducing a lot of Pokemon in this new entry is just kind of like one a week sort of thing. Like Mm -hmm. they introduced like the one that looks like a motorcycle dog or whatever (laughs) it is. Um, And then they had like, like, I think because just a couple weeks ago they had like the two mega man looking ones and Klauf or whatever that crab was. Um, and now we that, have that, Wiglet. that monk, yeah, the monkey with like the toxin on his. Oh, yeah, the, the the uh, the graffiti monkey, too, is also um, just like they just had like an individual trailer just for that. So it seems like that's basically what they're going to probably be doing is just like little individual trailers up until release in mid November. But yeah, yeah Wiglet is kind of creepy, <laughs> it, it reminds, reminds me, me of Kezu or something. I was gonna actually say Kezu, which is the oh, monster really? hunter, like creep, creepy phallic monster thing and that's i can't help but see see that in wiglet but yeah really short trailer it's a like 40 second little goofy thing but it's a goofy pokemon which i'm all i'm all for goofy pokemon of course, so it is what it is as, with anything pokemon as soon as that you know a little trailer is out just like immediately there's a weird like fan art and memes and whatnot <laughs> the uh with this weird stretchy diglet thing so yeah, so it's fun. It's a little. There's not a whole lot to say. There's like three screenshots, an, an artwork, and a little 40 second trailer for Wiglet. But I don't know. Pokemon are kind of interesting and, and cute and, and creepy in this case specifically. But go ahead and give that a look if you haven't seen Wiglet. It's it's something. Uh, and here's something that we didn't cover specifically on our site, but uh, we did cover um, the double Kickstarter for the Wild Arms and Shadow Hearts spiritual successors, Armed Fantasia and Penny Blood. So we've talked about those two projects in a few different contexts. Uh, specifically, that Kickstarter has closed. Um, I believe both projects pretty much met all their stretch goals. If you go to the Kickstarter page, you can actually see the full list of stretch goals that they did reach for both projects. Um, as the Kickstarter closed, there was like a closing stream. I don't know if these specifically came out of that, but uh, Gamatsu.com has re-uploaded some footage for these games. Of course, very early footage. These are like gameplay field tests uh, for like the overworld explore- exploration of Arn Fantasia and some like very short combat animations from Pennyblood and how it kind of has its own take on the like 
what is what was it called in Shadow Hearts? The Sigil Ring, uh, Judgment Ring, okay. Judgment Ring. Uh, so obviously, Penny Blood is the spiritual successor to Shadow Hearts, and uh, so Gamatsu.com, and we'll go ahead and link them here, uh, has kind of uploaded some of the very short early footage for those two projects, which the footage itself is kind of like too short and early to be that interesting in practice but in concept the fact that they already have that like vertical slices to present even in that fashion i think is very promising like these games aren't just concept art in a notebook they're actually like got working prototypes made so i think that is a good sign that these games kickstarter is kind of a grab bag in terms of like what you get out of it uh and we don't want to make any promises obviously we don't but not not only any promises but we don't want to like pre-bake our expectations for what these games are but the fact that we have footage for both projects already, even though we're likely a few years out from seeing anything concrete from either of them, is a good sign. So uh, we'll go ahead and link uh, Gomatsu's footage for these, um, the re-uploads for some of the gameplay footage from both uh, Armed Fantasia and Penny Blood for those that are eagerly anticipating uh, these games, even though it might be a while before we see them. Uh, to wrap up this podcast, we just have a few uh, a few release dates here for some smaller titles or some ports uh, that are coming out uh, before the end of the year or early next year. Uh, the first one is a free-to-play RPG called Undecember. We originally covered this game uh, late last year when it was coming out for mobile devices and PC in South Korea. However, it will launch in English for, this again, PC and mobile devices uh, on October 12th. So Adam has gone ahead and linked several trailers for Undecember up on the site. We have a cinematic trailer for the game. We have a combat trailer for the game. And then we've got a trailer specifically focusing on boss fights. So I don't have, I don't think anyone here has any direct hands-on experience with Undecember, but it was something that came out last year in Korea. And now we're going to have an official English release before the end of the month. So wanted to at least give that a shout out here. Another game that we've covered several years ago on the on the site is for a game from uh, Dongan Entertainment called The Witch's House MV. So this was a cult classic horror RPG that re-released back in 2018 that we had a contributor write a review up for the site uh, back then. Didn't score it very well, but we uh, have an announcement that it will be releasing for modern consoles on October 13th, so the very next day. So The Witch's House MV will be launching for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, uh, and November, uh, Nintendo Switch on October 13th. I guess yeah, it was apparently, a PC I'm not very familiar with this game other than, you know, what Kazuma wrote about it a couple of years ago. But I guess it was just like an RPG maker game that kind of took off, you know, and became something I'm going to call classic back in 2012. And then this is called Witch's House MV because the reason why is because it's made an RPG maker version MV. Oh, okay. um, but uh, and it came out on, on PC like four years ago. And now it's coming out to consoles. So, so I've seen, you know, kind of a handful of people like excited for it. You know, obviously it's not like a huge, big, you know, brand game, but it seems like it's got a little bit of a following. So mm-hmm. now it's going to be available for people who don't like to play on PC. So that's cool. Another game that is getting an October release date uh, is a procedurally roguelike. No, I don't know if it's procedural. Sorry. A roguelike turn-based RPG called Sea Horizon. It'll be launching on October 20th. For Nintendo Switch, uh, it'll, it already launched uh, on PC back in May. 
And then additionally, in next year for 2023, it will be launching for PlayStation and Xbox. So not not four or five years old, like Witch's House MV, but a PC game uh, that released earlier this year that will be getting a console port this month and uh, additional console ports um, early next year. And again, the title of that game is Sea Horizon. And then the, uh, the last game is also another console port, uh, a game that came out a few years ago, and that is Yan Wan Sword 7. But this is uh, back in 2020 or so. This released uh, on PC and eventually got official English support. Let's see, October 29th of that year. And then it eventually released for PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. But now it will also get a Switch port early next year. So it's kind of cool just to see a Chinese developed RPG become not only like readily available in English over the last few years, but readily available in English on several different platforms, including now, as of early 2023, a Nintendo Switch. So just kind of cool to see. Uh, and I don't yeah, with that, know. With, with games like that in December, it's just kind of, kind of nice to see, you know, games that aren't just from Western developers or Japanese developers, just like other Asian developers, Korea and China. Cool yeah. Mm-hmm. And that kind of covers it for uh, basically this whole podcast. So we got that string of late uh, October, early 2023 port and console uh, versions of existing games to look forward to. We have the kind of like you mentioned, Adam, the February has very quickly gotten pretty packed with the Labyrinth of Galleria and the Wild Hearts release date announcements. And then uh, got a lot of games in November to look forward to, let alone October, which we just now started. So going to be a busy time of year. Like I said early in this podcast, likely going to have plenty of new games to talk about pretty much every week through the end of the year as we uh, go into the, this hectic time of the um, getting into the early fringe of the holiday season. Uh, obviously, throughout the course of this podcast, we've talked about several of the features up on the site, the Valkyrie Elysium review, the Dealfield Chronicle review, the Voice of Cards Beast of Burden review, and the preview uh, coverage for Nier Automata on Switch, the Wolong Fallen Dynasty uh, demo impressions, and we, James, over the last two or three weeks, has put up a lot of impressions of different uh, demo and preview opportunities, both for uh, Square Enix t- by the time you guys are listening to this, I'll probably see impressions from uh, Distant Worlds last week. So, yeah. It, so it not only not, not only Square <laughs> Enix properties like uh, Dragon Quest Treasures and the Crisis Core remaster. That's another December release we're looking forward to. But like the 505 Games uh, event that James was able to attend. And then we also have some of the uh, other demo impressions for like Divine Force and things like that that are, you know, we'll be talking about those games again when they release in uh, in late October. Uh, so go ahead and go to RPG's, uh, rpgsite.net to give those uh, reviews and review features a read-through. Go ahead and bookmark Adam's RPGs of 2023 listing. He does a very great job of keeping that up-to-date throughout the year. Uh, you can find RPG site, all of the social media platforms. We've got, uh, you can just search for RPG site on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We have a Discord channel, discord.gg slash RPG site. If you listen to this podcast on uh, either on the website itself or on Apple Apple Podcasts or Spotify, go ahead and give us a rating or review. Tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what we're not doing so well. Um, we'd like to get that feedback and we'll take it to heart. Uh, and then I guess before we close out this podcast, Adam, as we were recording, did post one other piece of news that I do want to give a shout out here because it is a little bit disappointing. But we got a update for, uh, is it Z-A-U-M? Zom? The developers I actually behind- don't know how you pronounce it. Yeah, so this is the developers behind a game that we thought really highly of in 2019, Disco Elysium, and then released the next year with their console and like 
uh, complete edition of that game, the final cut. So we have a blog post from Martin Lugia, who is a founding member of the ZIUM Cultural Association. We have this blog post linked up on the site and a little bit of digesting of the information contained within. But the long story short is that it seems like a lot of the creative talent behind Disco Elysium since late 2021 have left the studio, seemingly like due just to circumstances behind development. Well, that the, were... the, the, yeah, they says involuntarily. So like, oh, maybe they didn't want to, but they did. <laughs> So this includes designer Robert Kurvitz, uh, director Alexander Rostov, and writer Helen Hinsper. So three very key talents behind Disco Elysium are no longer with that studio, who ostensibly is creating some sort of sequel or follow-up, but will not have the same talent behind it, which is unfortunate. Yeah, just because... for a little bit of background, this Z-A-U-M or Zaum, or I, I honestly don't know how you pronounce it. I apologize for that. I've only ever um, seen it in writing. Yeah, so yeah, okay. yeah I've only ever seen it in writing. Um, they, uh, they started as just kind of like a group of, you know, Eastern Europeans really like coming together to form art, like the curvature of a novel there, they do music, they do paintings. And there's actually a games radar piece piece that I linked that kind of goes a little bit more into, you know, kind of how did Disco Elysium get made? Um, supposedly it was something like curvature wrote a book and it didn't do very well. And he was just kind of advised kind of bluntly people don't read books but people do play games and eventually the games development studio came out of that um so i guess that collective the of artists and musicians no longer exists according to this blog post um which is from one of the founders however the d game development studio still exists um and they're even if you go to their website they're hiring and everything and they have several locations but those key developing, you know, those key members like Robert Curvez and the other two you mentioned behind Disco Elysium are, are not there, reportedly. So long story short, the collective is gone. Development studio is there, but the key founders are left. So which that includes <laughs> like an artist and the two lead writers. Yeah, it's like the Elysium. main people there. So like the main identity of the game's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I will say that. Um, Maybe other people felt differently, but after playing Disco Elysium and, and Disco Elysium, I feel like it's one of those games that over time people have kind of understood like more and more just how important of a game it is. Like it, it definitely yeah. feels like as time has gone gone on, people are like, like at the time people were like, man, this is really, really good. And now it's like the further along you get and you see how lasting its influence has been and how like as more and more people play it, they love it just as much as like. I'll say, like, I, from my perspective, like, Disco Elysium is probably in the top five most important games to come out in the last decade. And uh, yeah. I never really expected there to be, like, a proper follow-up to it because, like, a game yeah. like that, it's like capturing lightning in a bottle. So, mm -hmm. And it also just seems like it's kind of transcended boundaries where it doesn't focus on narrative RPG players. I've seen people who primarily lean towards both Western RPGs and Japanese RPGs take two... Disco Elysium, like I'm thinking of previous site contributor George Foster, who doesn't play this sort of game at all, really adored Disco Elysium. Like I, I remember, I think I had a crow thinking that he wouldn't like it and he loved it. Didn't he, didn't he end up getting like a, t a tattoo for it or something? I, I, I don't know for certain, he but bought I would not Kim's be surprised. And oh, yeah. <laughs> but he got a tattoo that's, too. That's, that, that seems like a very George thing to do. But yeah, so uh, Disco Elysium is a great game. It's a sort of game that if I can make time 
Reuse and stand still for a bit. I'd like to replay just to re-experience it. Um, it's not that long a game, but uh, just too many other games to play. So we'll obviously report. So this is not from the development studio. This is from a blog post uh, on Medium, I believe. So not. It's kind of like not official, but at the same time, it's from the horse's mouth. Uh, so uh, we will report on it, and if there are any updates of any sort, we will obviously report on that as well, including like even though it won't have the same talent behind it, if the actual development studio does make any formal announcements about some sort of follow-up to Disco Elysium, we will obviously report on that too with, an, uh, with the understanding of exactly where it's coming from, which this blog post gives us a little bit of insight to uh, some news that is a little bit disappointing on that front. But that is up on the site just now. It's as of the time of recording, it's our most recent news article. So if that is a game that you thought very highly of and you're looking forward to what that studio might have been working on next, uh, just some context for, for your expectations there. So thank you, Adam, for uh, putting that together. Yep. Uh, so with that said, uh, I don't exactly know what's going to be on the... Um, on the docket for next week i'm, I'm actually going to pull up adam's rpgs of 2022 list and see like what does early october have uh in store for us so we got triangle strategy on pc on the 13th we've got um lost idolans which is an indie game that i've mentioned interest in a few times on the 13th uh we might have a, a chance to potentially talk to colin about near automata on switch or we might just talk about as more people get uh time with kuro 2 in Jap japanese or uh um dio field chronicle or valkyrie elysium on playstation might just have a chance to kind of circle circle the wagons on those and just give more some more uh some more interpretations of what we thought about those recent releases. So stay tuned because we don't even know what we'll be talking about next week. Uh, might be a surprise to us as well. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and again, thanks to even though he's not here, thanks to want to give a shout out to Josh for being able to cover both those games in detail at the start of the podcast. Uh, we will be talking to you next week as we go and head towards the end of the year. Until you hear from us next time, stay safe and take care. And we'll see you later. Later, everyone.